Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Living It with Chris Waddell. I am Chris Waddell. Today, I am with Joe Tompkins. Joe was my roommate back when we were on the ski team. He is a champion skier. He is a baseball coach, American Legion baseball coach. He's a guy in a wheelchair, uh, so champion mono skier. He is a three-time uh, state champion baseball coach, half Native American, lives in Juneau, Alaska, and apparently he has to dress himself with the clothes that people discard. For those of you who are not watching, Joe has a Yankees jersey on, Yankees sweatshirt, and and I can only assume that he picked that up in the trash somewhere. So, uh, so Joe, thank you for for joining us. Hey, so yeah. we were we were up in Juneau. We did we did a show with you. You took us out fishing. You took us out to the golf course. You took us to all of your hot spots in Juneau. You have traveled throughout the world. When yes. you were when you're skiing with the U.S. Disabled Ski Team or U.S. Adaptive Ski Team, you were you traveled all over. You've traveled all over on your own. You are back in Juneau, where you grew up. Why Juneau? Because, as you know, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. the The people up here are they're amazing. Um, you got Mother Nature. If you what, want, what be makes the people amazing? Well, it's a it's a community of people that if something happens. The, the rest of them are there to help. If a person's in need, they're there to help. Um, they're not in, they're not a lot of fake people um, up up here. They, they love the outdoors. They love people. They love hunting, fishing, and the beauty that we're surrounded by. Juno is pretty unique, right? Because one, you can't drive to Juno. You can only fly or take a boat. So you can't drive, you, you literally reach the point that says, end of the road, turn around, go back. Yeah. It also is the only capital that borders a country too, right? You guys border border Canada? Yes. And so, and and it's it's one of one of the largest cities in the US as far as square acreage is concerned or square miles are concerned. Yeah, it's like second or third largest, I think. Right, exactly. Canada. So it's huge, but then, but you guys are, you guys are still fairly isolated, right? Because you can't, you can't drive somewhere else. You stay within this community. And is it a lot of people that you grew up with who continue to be natives to Juno? About half my friends, some went out and stayed out and they keep coming back during the summer. But yeah, it's the harsh weather. You have to, you have to acclimate to yourself to what, what you can handle. I mean, cause, cause of the lightness and the darkness during the, you know, the, the darkness in the winter, of course, and then the summer, the light. So and what's the, how, how many hours of daylight do you have during the winter time? I'd say six, maybe seven. Six or seven hours of daylight. And so corresponding on the summertime where you have six or seven hours of dark? I would say four or five hours of dark. Really? So yeah. it's just, it's just light all the time and yeah. we're approaching the, the longest day of the year. So is that a day of celebration in Juneau? Absolutely. Even, even, even the shortest day is a celebration in Juneau. It is. Yeah. So you guys were celebrating my accident. My accident happened on the shortest day of the year. Oh, it did. December, December 20th. Yeah. Of 88, which I think is the shortest day. I mean, it goes back and forth, right? Between the 20th, the 21st kind of thing which one is actually the, uh, the shortest day of the year. So you're, you, coach, you coach baseball. And, and a lot of the kids that you coach will leave Juno. will leave this, this comfortable, insular, supported place to go elsewhere. What are, you, what are you teaching them? What are you, how are you preparing them for when they go to the lower 48? Um, well, the, big, the biggest thing I tell them is right now, they are a big, big fish in a small pond. And then it's going to totally reverse once they get down there. And they're just a number. They're a number to a coach. But if they do what they're taught, they will excel. As you can remember, like when I, 
I first went down to your camp with a rusty ski. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I never had a coach. I'd never had anybody. But so I, I tell them what to expect and what college coaches I think expect. And I, every time I meet a college coach, I ask them questions about, hey, I coach high school age kids. I coach high school and American Legion. I want to see what I, what you're looking for. And I pretty much know in my brain what the college coaches are looking for. You know, you can't have body language. You can't have throwing the bat or getting mad at yourself. You can't show that emotion. You can't show that at all. And I teach kids that. Um, and, you know, the biggest one, as you know, is hustle and paying attention and attention to detail. And just all the stuff that I wish I was taught in early on, like my skiing and my baseball and what, what I could have done. Exactly. You're, you're a coach now. What would, you have, what would you have taught yourself? How would you have coached yourself? The same way I, same way I coach the kids now. The, I mean, they're all different, but like for me, the ones that I reach out and I think I really connect with are the ones that were, were like me or are like me that have all, a lot of talent and they just don't, they just don't know it yet. Like I knew I was good. I just didn't know how good I was or how good I could have been because I was never told that. And to me, I, w I had this facade where I was overconfident and stuff where I never, never had, never had a coach tell me what to do. I always said, Hey, I'll, I'll pitch or I'll, play center field today just bat me four where the coach didn't tell me i just told him what i wanted so you needed somebody to smack you upside the head pretty much in the short of it yes did you get that when you were skiing at all yeah i had some little guy from the east coast tell me that once in a while harass me wake me up when i was snoring <laughs> yeah i got that from you i actually got that the first person i got that from was paul debello Rest in peace, Paul DeBello. We lost him. But um, I got that from him. I called uh, him up and I said, I'm interested in, in ski racing. And, and he said, well, get the F down here. We'll show you what to do. And I'm like, wow, that's what I need. Because I never had that for baseball. And then I, got, I went to yours and Sarah's camp. And, you know, you guys lit a fire in there you never knew was in there by you said like you know you're gonna have to get serious about this and and pay attention to stuff where i was always clowning but i knew i think i knew you guys knew that i could do it it's just whether i wanted to and whether i had to drive so you helped inspire that that fuel can you describe just quickly who who paul debello is paul debello is a man that became disabled after um i think glacier hiking or mountain mountain climbing yeah he started a disabled ski program in in winter park colorado yeah and lost both of his legs to to frostbite gangrene and so and fingers part of his lost nose and yeah fingers part of his nose yeah and um he's a wonderful guy who had a drive to help out other disabled athletes he really wanted equality for his athletes all of them he's like these are not well as i don't know because it wasn't politically correct but he said they're not special olympians they're paralympians they're athletes they just do it a different way you know and they we don't want a pat on the back we want we're racing we don't want a hug we're racing we're fighting we're competitors he lit the fuel in a lot of people's heart and he, you know, and his roughness kept me around and pushed me and I needed that and I respect him for it. And, um, and we didn't always get along and we always didn't see eye to eye, but his drive and his, his view for people like us and people disabled one leg, one arm, whatever, he wanted the best out of them and he wanted them to become athletes and be seen in the world as another human being that just, did what they did and they weren't special they just skied or they raced because of what that's what they wanted to do how does that feel for you is that part of what you're trying to do as well 
I mean, probably for yourself, I'd imagine, but how, how do you approach that? Changing the perceptions of people or getting them to see you? To me, I just, if they see the disability, to me, that's their loss. You know, because I don't see a disability. I just see that you and I and other people are doing it a different way. You know, we, we adapt and we move on. I mean, it, like you used to say, is like, you know, for us to go through the airport or us to drive would take somebody else maybe an hour. It takes us three hours because we got to pack and pack other stuff and do stuff. And we're a little bit slower, but we get it done. You know, we move stuff. It's just not as fast as an able body would. But we're not we're not asking for a sympathy word or anything like that. We're just for us. It's something that it's our life. And that's what we do. For me, I don't care. When I golf, you and I golf, when I coach, if you see a wheelchair instead of a human being that has a heart and a beat heart and a blood, then that's, that's your problem. I would say that you were probably, one of your biggest jobs is that of being a protector. Is that, is that something that you, that, that you would say about yourself? That's definitely a fair assessment. I'm, I always feel like a protector, yeah. Something I've always done. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a protector? Who are you protecting and where did it come from? Most of the time, probably protecting my friends and family, but sometimes, sometimes you'll see, like I, because you called me out, you don't catch yourself because you, like you're protecting your heart, you know, yourself, but yeah, it's mainly friends and family. Mainly friends and family. And why? Why are you, why do you find that you are in that position of being the protector? I mean, I'd imagine you're doing it for your kids, who the your players and things like that too, right? Yeah. Well, those are eventually friends and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. You just want to protect. I don't know where I where I get that from. Who was who was your protector? Did you have a protector? My dad was my biggest protector. But then my sister, my older sisters were, and then they would, they would all protect me because I was like the baby. And then, because um, my brothers would like to kick my butt. And did. <laughs> and did for a while, not too long. Yeah, and my mom, the big protector, she's probably the most wonderful person in the world. She's a nurse, so she's protecting and taking care of people. And I think probably that's something I learned from her. Yeah, I'd imagine that you have a little bit of the contrast as well between your father, who, who, who was your, who was your biggest protector, but also was the one who would push you the most, right? Who would say, "Hey, if you if you look at a third call, if you get a called third strike, don't come home tonight," you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so, is is that some of is that some of what you're teaching your kids? Is that some of the preparation in in working working with your with your athletes? Because I mean, there's 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 technical stuff that you can teach them. And yeah. which is, which is helpful, but so much of in baseball, it comes down to a moment here and there, right? I mean, you're, you're hanging out for the vast majority of your time playing baseball. Right. And then every once in a while you get that moment where it's like, okay, are you on it? Are you fully on it? Are you prepared to do your job right now? Is, is that what you find is your, is your role in, in, in working with these athletes? I think it's just preparing them and, and showing them a lot of, a lot of it is you figure out that you're not just coaching, as you know, you're not coaching just for the skiing or the baseball. You're pretty much life coaching for, for the ones that want to connect with you. these kids here. will never look at a guy in a wheelchair the same because, Oh, well, coach Joe, he can kick our butt in golf. He can get up in the batter, you know, the batter and I can't strike him out. Where at, at, they started coming back at 18, 19 years old, and they're happier than snot when they strike me out, you know? And before where they couldn't, I just tell them, hey, I'm getting older. You guys are getting older and stronger. That's all it is. But yeah, you're on the you way down. Start, yeah. 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 I'm on that hill and I'm going down now. But you prepare them, you show them more than more than you think you do because you're not paying attention to that. And then they come back. Like I said, I had, I had one kid that you met, I think uh, Casey Watts and Zeb. Both those guys came back after playing college ball, and we've golfed this summer. 
I haven't golfed for like seven years. Besides when you came, I golfed once, like probably about seven times in seven years. Cause you know, we're getting older and a little beat up and you saw the golf course, right? So I did. <laughs> so they called and they say, Hey, you want to go golfing? Of course I want to go golfing. You can't say no to your athletes, right? Or they call you and say, Hey, you want to go to dinner? That's, that's the biggest thank you because they know you don't get paid for doing it. Hold yeah. on, hold on. I, I want to I wanna ask a question about that because I know it's a high compliment to receive these phone calls from your former players who want to go out and go golfing with you. Do you take their money? No. Casey took $25 off me. <laughs> but would I take it? Yes, I would. <laughs> yes, you would. And you'd tell him about it each time you saw him too, wouldn't you? Yeah. But right now, Casey's got the upper hand. Zeb's learning, so he doesn't mind being coached by me in golf. Were you a were you a better athlete or or a better or are you a better coach? Well, I was one hell of an athlete. I don't know that I'm a good coach. I love to coach, but I don't know that I'm a good coach. Oh well, I mean let's let's put this in context, right? So so you were so you were an athlete growing up. Baseball was really your primary sport. Baseball, basketball would be a second to it. And then then you had your accident. And then, right. then you came back and you're a monoskier. And you know, one year you won the downhill globe. You were the best downhiller, best monoskiing downhiller in the world. Could so, you repeat that? <laughs> you were the best. I mean, I had already retired at that point. So uh, <laughs> Open the door for you, but uh, but no, you had uh, you were you were the best in the world at at that one event for that year. I don't know. I poured my heart into coaching. I I never poured my heart into at being an athlete. It was just a natural thing. Do you do you look back on that at all and and wish that you had done things differently? And does that does that inform how you how you coach now too? Or oh, definitely changes how I I coach now. No, I love what I did. I love doing it. I don't think I would have changed it. Cause I, I never really, really wanted to be like number one in the world. It wasn't my thing. I was in, I just want, for me, I use this as a tool so I can go talk to kids about drugs and alcohol and stuff, you know, because if I didn't go do anything after my accident, my words, I don't think would mean anything besides being the guy that was the guy that was in the wheelchair. So let's let's back up a little bit because you're talking about alcohol and and drug education for kids that that it's one of the things that's really near and dear to your heart. I would imagine that it's near and dear to your heart partially because you ended up in a wheelchair as a result of a drunk driving accident. What can you tell me what happened and and how that might have changed you moving forward? Well, we're a bunch of teenagers. We got in the car, got in the car and Two of my great buddies got in the car with a drunk driver. Of course, you know, when you're drunk, you don't ask the guy if he's drunk. So he went out, got in the car. We we're going from party to party. And um, we, we went off the road and hit a tree. And um, I became disabled. I lost my best friend in a car accident. And my next best friend went in a coma. He's out now. He's a comedian. He's good. For two years, I'm going to tell you a story just because I know you want to ask anyways. One month before the accident, my son was born, Donald. And then the accident happened, well, he was born December 17th. The accident happened January 23rd, so pretty much a month. And so for one month, I was the happiest guy in the world. And then one month later, I became the most miserable person in the world. Um, changed my life because I was an athlete that could have went somewhere. And you ask why I coached, because I never have a coach that pushed me or told you had the, the right tools. That's one of the reasons why I coach. And helped you develop. So what, so you're talking about the, the two years afterwards that you were, that you were miserable. What, what does that mean? What, what did miserable look like? Miserable look like, well, there, you know, there's people that want to commit suicide and not live. And then there's people that don't want to live. I was one of those people that just didn't want to live. So I didn't care whether I died or lived at that at that point. So for two years, I got into drugs and alcohol, more drugs than I ever did before the accident, and I had a lot more drinking than I ever did before the accident. And to the point where Juno's a small town, right? I mean, it's a small town where everybody knows each other, and 
what the police had a had had a lottery based on based on when you might die, didn't they? I mean, is that just a joke that you've that you've said or? Yeah, they had a pot going. They won't. A lot of them won't admit it now, but they had a a bet going of that I wouldn't who if Joe Tompkins wouldn't live past twenty one because I was nineteen when my accident happened. So you were nineteen, and that you wouldn't live for those two years. Right, I wouldn't live to be past twenty one because of the, what I was doing, my actions. I mean, actions speak louder than words. I was, I was miserable. Were you miserable so, to other people as well? Only, only when I was drunk. When I was sober, I was fine. But I was, I was an asshole um, when I was drunk because the real feelings of me faking that everything was okay when I was sober went away when I drank. And I was mad. I was mad at the world. I was mad at everybody except for me for getting in that car. Right. So it was all it was all their fault. It wasn't it was your their fault. fault. It was all my teacher's fault, all the police department's fault. It was all the driver, I would imagine. I, you know, I never got mad at the driver. Interesting. Okay. But you got mad at your parents. Oh, yeah, I got mad at my parents, the police, teachers. I was never I didn't take responsibility. So, and that's what actually helped me get out of it, was taking responsibility for myself. How, how did that happen? Because it's hard to get out of these things, right? I mean, once you're in the situation, it's hard to get out of it. You don't know you're in it, really. You didn't, like, I knew that I didn't, I didn't care whether I lived or die. So if I overdosed, that's another touching story. Or if I drank myself and got hit by a car, I wouldn't care. I got in trouble with the law in, around New Year's or something like that. And then um, people were telling me, hey, you got a problem with drugs or alcohol. I said, no, I don't have a problem. With it. I love to do it. And I don't, I don't care. I can stop anytime. Well, no one, no one believed that at all. At all. I mean, from judges to police to friends that never believed that. Never believed that you could stop whenever you wanted to. Right. I went to jail, I think on New Year's or around New Year's or whatever. No, it was before. Because I... I was loud and obnoxious out at a party or whatever. So it wasn't anything bad, bad. You do that now sober. What are you talking about? I know. Remember, we get cut off. So that night that I went to jail, my son didn't know why I didn't come home before he went to bed. So you were living with your girlfriend and your and your son. Right. And at about two years old, he came up running and he's just like, daddy, daddy. And I was hungover and, of course, woke up. And I turned to him and I said, what? And my facial expressions and my tone to a two-year-old, you know, yeah, you make a little difference. And he just started tearing up and started walking away. I said, no, wait, wait, come here. What? What is it? And he just said, I just wanted to say I love you. And it made me cry, but I couldn't cry in front of him. And I gave him a hug and I said, I love you too. And something clicked right there that said, you're showing this kid how not to live instead of how to live. And from then on, probably four or five days later, I said, you know what? I totally give it up. So I probably went out and drank probably about another three or four times. Never did any hard drugs or anything after that. But January 6th, like 30 years ago, I gave up drugs and alcohol. I decided that I'm going to show him how to live, that, you know, whatever happened to me, I'm going to be the best dad that I can. So I picked that up and, and then just started slowly. Okay, I'm doing it for my son. Why can't I do it for my nieces and my nephews? So I tried to help them and explain to them because I have a lot of them grown up and I wanted to be a good example. I wanted to show them how to do it. And did you do it on your own? Did you did you have to go to rehab? Were you Do you look back on it and say that you were addicted to drugs and alcohol or were you addicted to the risk or what were you how do how do you how do you, what's the story you tell yourself now i was in a depression i was in a funk whatever you want to call it and yeah i could have been addicted but i don't think i was because no i didn't go to AA. i didn't go to i always tell people i did the 13 step program because i guess a is a 12 12 step, step program. program right yeah i said i do the 13 step and they go what do you mean i go well I just jumped all the 12 steps and just did 13 and I quit forever. I'm like, what the hell do you mean? I'm like, I just decided I'm not going to do it. And I got it. I have to be a father to this young man, this little boy. I mean, like I said, he was, I was the happiest man in the world for one month. Right. Have you, have you had any risk of, of going back? Have you had the temptation or? When I broke up with, had a breakup of a longtime girlfriend or something. I went and bought a beer and sat at the bar and had it right in front of me. You never drank it. You just sat it in front of you. 
Nope. Was that was that testing yourself or was that what do you it was seeing if I was gonna do it, if it was worth it, you know? If I'm gonna definitely testing myself. Like, okay, are you gonna be a little bitch and drink it or are you gonna man up and say, No, mom, I decided to turn around and go play pool and I decided no. You don't have a lot of sympathy for people who are who who become addicted to drugs and alcohol. So I don't know. I, I I remember seeing a post where you said something about, am I right in saying that? Am I right in asking about that? Or no, you are correct. I don't have sympathy. I have empathy. I think because when we drink or we do drugs, we do it for self selfish reasons. Correct. I I guess so. I haven't thought about it in that context. So what do you mean by doing it for selfish reasons? We're doing it just to please ourselves. Right. If I went out to drink, I wouldn't be pleasing anybody but my soul, my heart, my feeling. Or we self-medicate. We try and get rid of that feeling. That's why I went to the bar. Because like, okay, maybe this beer will help me feel better for that one time when I have my heart broken. And then that would feel good for that little time. Okay, but what about when you wake up sober, not, not on drugs, not on alcohol, and that feeling comes back? Well, you're just snow, snowballing the problem. So the problem's getting bigger and bigger. And is it that you're avoiding responsibility or what's, what's the issue that you have? Um, for me, it was, I was avoiding responsibility. For me, it was using alcohol and drugs as a crutch or as an excuse. And were you using drugs and alcohol as the crutch or an excuse, or were you using your accident as the crutch and excuse? No, I was using, I was using alcohol. Like, I was using alcohol and the drugs to, I didn't want to commit suicide, but I didn't want to live. Right. And you didn't want to live because of what had happened to you with your accident, right? Yeah. Because at that time, I feel like it was taken away. And then when I looked at myself in the mirror after talking to my son, Donald, when he was two years old and almost breaking the kid's heart for just by my gruff voice in the morning and tone that I gave him, I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what? You're the one that did all this. You did it. You didn't drive the car, but you got in the car. Would you have been there if you weren't drinking and partying with your friends? No, because you wouldn't have been in that situation. If you were, you'd been sober enough to say, hey, get out of the driver's seat. I'm going to drive. But meanwhile, you weren't, you weren't sober enough to, to get anybody out of the driver's seat. No. Even if I was drunk enough, I could, I could do it. I, but I just didn't care. I just wanted to go to the next, to the next party. How did you take responsibility? What did, it, what did it look like? I mean, we heard the, the story about Donald at two years old, but then what did you do? What did you do moving forward? How did you, how did that, what did that look like? It was owning up to it. And like when I talked to the kids, I didn't say it was, the biggest word thing is changing your words to my baseball career was taken away from me to I gave my baseball career away. I gave it away by drinking. I gave it away by getting in the car with a drunk driver. And um, those are the biggest things. The words, just the changing those little words make you expect, accept responsibility. When someone says, oh, you poor thing, you know, you got in an accident. It's like, no, I'm not a poor thing. I did it. I have to live with it. It's something I, I live with every day. I'm the one, I'm the little idiot teenager that got in the car with a drunk driver. So it's me. And there's no poor me. The poor me is my mom that doesn't deserve seeing her son go through that. That's the poor me. But having a mother that I had, she never had the poor me attitude. She's like, just, you know what? She cinched up her, her coat, said, okay, what do we have to do to get through this? And if you, as you met your, my mom, you're like, how could this kid be yours? How could those kids be yours? You know? She, she's this angel, yeah. Yes, she is. She really is. How did you get healthy? You know, because because the the alcoholism in a lot of ways was was a representation of you being unhealthy, of the the desire to kill yourself or or not to live, not necessarily to kill yourself, but but not to live. What were the steps? How did you go from that place to 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 you know, to, to living, to living your life fully, to, to being happy with who you were and where you were going. Well, the first day that I quit, I went down to the bar because everybody's like, Oh, you, you got to stay away from this, this, and this. And I'm like, no, I don't. I'm going down to the bar to shoot pool with my friend. And then when I shoot pool, as you know, 
like you, you always want to be the best. You don't want to be the best you. You want to be the best person, not sitting down, not standing up. You want to be the best. No qualifiers, just the best. Okay. Right. So if I wanted to be the best pool player, I just, I, I took that in. And then people, like all my friends were like, hey, here's a drink. And then when I said no over and over, I guarantee you, it was a thousand times in the first four or five months. Because you'd go to the bar every night. I'd go shoot pool every night, yeah. Because I wanted to be the best. So I'd practice and practice and practice. And then all my friends and other people that met me, like, here, here's a drink. I'm like, no, I'm not drinking. I'm just here to shoot pool. And they go, do you quit? I said, no, I just don't drink anymore. So you said that right from the beginning that you don't drink anymore. It's not that you quit. It's not that you stop drinking. It's not that you, you, you're not having a drink. It's that you don't drink anymore. It happened that distinctly? Well, no, for the first week, I said I quit. But then my friend would say, oh, well, you can start up again. Being helpful. Right. Right. So if you quit, you can start up again. But if you say, no, I don't drink anymore. You, you can't say, oh, you can start up again. You say, I don't drink anymore. Yeah. And then after about 10 of those, they stop buying you drinks, you know, and they see me throwing my alcohol over my shoulder. They stop buying you drinks like that. You're wasting it. I'm like, no, somebody else can't drink it. <laughs> You're wasting their money, but yeah, but they exactly. wasted, they wasted their money. So what else, what else did you do? So you were going to the bar, you were shooting pool, but what else did you do in your life? I mean, you were, you were what, 21 years old? Yeah, I started coaching baseball again. Actually, not again, for the first time. And like Little League, Legion, who were you coaching? It was called Big League back then. Big League. So what, was, what were the ages of the kids? Um, 16 to 15 to 18. Oh, really? Okay, so older kids. These are kids who are just barely younger than you, really. Yes, but the, the other guy that I was coaching with, came back from college and was coaching and they needed coaches. So we just started coaching. And did you feel like that was something that you were always supposed to do? I don't know. I just loved it. I loved coaching. I loved teaching them, you know, where they would hit a fly ball. Some of them have a hard time. Like, I'm like, I could have caught that. And then one of them goes, Oh yeah, show us. And then you get out there with the wheelchair and catch a fly ball. They're like, Oh, He's right, you know, because that in your in my mind, that's still like, yeah, I can hit that. Yes, I can, I can do that. And then for them to see it, you know, you're you open some eyes. So you had to prove a bit of your credibility though, too. You had to prove that you were you were worth listening to. Oh, absolutely. Because all they would do is hear like stories that I would have to tell them. And then you tell them or have some other coach go, yeah, he did that. One of your one of your big questions was that you relied more on talent than you did on your work. So so some of that's just God given, right? You 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 were born you were born to do this, and oftentimes those people have a difficult time communicating what they're trying to you know for somebody else, you know, teaching somebody else. Well, just just hit the ball. Like, don't, don't, don't give me a hard time about this stuff. Like, no, no, it just, just, you see the ball, you hit the ball, call it good. Why, why do you feel like you were able to communicate with them? Or why do you feel like you wanted to try to communicate with them? That's a great question. Because I, I know the game, or I think I know the game. And a lot of, a lot of little league coaches now are just, you know, I mean, they're all volunteers, but a lot of them are parents. And then you see, their kid in the pitching role or the catching role or the shortstop where they shouldn't be, where, where little Johnny out in right field should be the shortstop. You know, you just see stuff like that. And you're like, okay, I'm going to coach because I'm going to coach against these fathers that are coaching their kid. And then these other 11 kids just happen to be on the team. How, how did it progress? So you have, did you coach all the way along from, from 21 on or? No, I did it for like two years. And then, um, I got into just fishing a lot. And then I think I was 26 or 27 because I was playing wheelchair basketball, like just open gyms with guys. And one guy goes, why don't you try skiing? I'm like, are you kidding me? Skiing? He goes, no, really. 
put you on this little sled and you go down. I guess it's called Aurora sled or something. The Aurora sled. Yeah. Oh, so you started back then, which was really like a sled where then you had ice picks in your hand and that's yeah. how you, how you directed yourself sort of digging the ice pick in to turn right and then turn left. And I would love to ride that now, but yeah, that's what I started with. Really? When was that? Do you remember? 27 years ago. 93 and your accident was in 88. Okay. So five years. So you started doing that and did you, did you fall in love with it? Did you think it was something that you wanted to do? Cause it would, it would make far more sense for you to go back into basketball, albeit right. wheelchair basketball, than it would be for you to go into skiing because you were a basketball player. You knew the game, you loved the game. I mean, you were one that's of those what guys people who would think, right? That's what I would think. Yes, exactly. It would make sense. No, because you can't dunk, you can't get in there and you can't, to me, you can't play the real basketball. You're in a wheelchair. So to, in your mind, you're like, in my mind anyway, you're like, no, I'm not. You can't play basketball. You can't dunk. You can't rebound like that. So it never even crossed my mind. I mean, as a pickup, you were, you were fine with it. Pickup, it was fun to shoot around. Well, maybe describe that a little bit because there is a part of it, right? That if, that if you've done a sport, that it, it might not be the same. I mean, I was a ski racer and for right. me to come back to skiing, that was one of my biggest worries is that it wouldn't be the same as I had done it before. And, and so it sounds like that was the issue for you with basketball, but with skiing, you had skied a little bit just recreationally. Like three times. You didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> you could say that now. <laughs> oh no, I yeah. would have said that then too. Right. Oh, you definitely would have, you would have. You would have been laughing at me from the lift. I would have been trying to stay out of your way as best I could, really, is what it comes down <laughs> to. <laughs> you sound like you would have been dangerous out there. So, so you got into skiing, and so you went from the Arroyo sled, and then did you move up to, I'm trying to think of the name of that, uh, the monoski that you first, that you first were on. Wasn't that a Unique? Ah, uh, yeah, the Unique. Unique, exactly, yep. Okay, so here's the story. I did that for on the Aurora sled for two seasons. So, and it wasn't like, I did it like three times a year. And this is right in Juneau that you were doing right. it. So I did that for two seasons. And the next season, a bi ski went by me. And of course, these people in Juneau didn't know everything that everybody knew about disabled skiing. Well, it was right? pretty brand new then too, really. I mean, it was like the mono ski really was kind of around from like, you know, 86, 80, 88 kind of thing. Yeah, see, I didn't know that, but they didn't know from the Aurora side. But anyways, the Biski came by and guy goes, hey, you want to try that? And I'm like, yeah, that looks more fun than this sled thing. So I got in that. And of course, you know, big old Joe, <laughs> 200 pounds back then. So so you got into the Biski. And, and what's your first objective? I, 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 I have an idea of what I think your first objective is. What was your objective? Hit a jump. Okay, okay, okay. I, I thought you were just gonna go fast, but, but hitting a jump makes sense too. Go fast and hit a jump. So I did that. I hit a jump, first jump I hit, broke, broke a ski. So they kicked you out of it. They kicked me out of it. And then I think this is exactly what happened. When I broke it, some guy, no, I was, they fixed it and I was back on it the next year. And some guy goes, comes by, his name's uh, Scott McPherson, came by with a monoski and he was so fast. And some guy goes, that's what we're going to go to next. And I, I was scared. I was literally scared out of my life. I'm like, no way. He goes, that is way too fast. And the guy goes, that's what we'll go on next because you're too heavy for this bi-ski. And if you want to ski again, this is what you have to do. You said that it was too fast or he said that it was too fast? I did. You did? Yeah. Really? What was wrong with you? Um, I was freaked out, man. That was that was fast from, from what I was doing. I that's mean, awesome. Okay. Yeah. I just know you as a bit of a speed freak. So so that's surprising yeah. to me. Well, that's when it all hit. When I got on the monoski and we were doing the bunny hill, I'm like, we don't need this bunny hill. We need to go up there after that. The first day was over. After you kind of figured it out and that kind of thing a little bit. 
No, it was like four four runs. I said, let's go up there. Like, no, nope, we're going to do this. And then that lunch, we'll talk about it. Because, of course, they knew more than I did at that time. And I get up there because uh, we get on the lift. And I'm scared out of my mind, you know, just being that tippy, unique going over. And and you sit about six inches off the lift, too. So you're, yeah, you're, you're not in, a, in the most stable position in a monoski on the chairlift. No, you're not, not the most all. comfortable thing. Right. Okay. No, it's actually probably one of the most uncomfortable things ever. Right. I'm always holding on. Yes. Yeah. I know. I've seen you. <laughs> I don't want to fall out. Well, okay. So keep going. Keep going. What happened? Okay. So, you know, you're tethered the first few days or whatever. Tethered means they stick a, a rope on you, a tether, and they hold you up from going too fast or they help you turn. They help you. Um, they just mainly stop you from going straight down the hill. Pretty right. Much. And keep you from falling over to a certain extent as well. Well, yeah, they didn't do that. And so after beating me myself up on the first three or four days, because when they helped try and turn, they actually dropped me, like, you know, pushed me over the ground. I said, you got to, you have to take this tether off. You're doing no good. They're like, we can't. I'm like, yeah, you can. So I talked them into it. And boy, did I scare the shit out of myself going downhill. <laughs> but I loved it. And I fell in love with it. And that's, that is right there. That when the wind is actually in your face and nobody's helping you, I felt so, I really felt so alive. I literally felt I was doing something that everybody else does, but I'm doing it by myself. I didn't have a tether. I didn't have anything. So the way I explain this is to everybody is when you see American bald eagle soaring up in the air and he's all by himself and it's the same in the wind, that's exactly how I feel every time I ski. Really? And was that the first time you felt like that since your accident? Yeah. So you were back in some ways? In, in all the ways I could. My spirit was happy. My mind was happy. My body was sore as all get out, but I was happy. So yeah. you had to ski. You didn't have a choice. No. And is that when you decided that you wanted to, to become a ski racer? And did you, did you have the thought of going to the Paralympics then? Or how did, no. how did that part work? Nope. And then, and then I probably skied another two times up there because it was hard to get me in a ski. And they didn't have a, a lot of the volunteers there that you can go every day. And in Juneau, it's only open like five days a week anyways, the ski mm -hmm. area. Right. Okay. And I went up there. So I probably went another five times that season. And then the next season I, st I went up there probably about five times and some guy goes, Hey, there's this thing called ski spectacular down in Colorado. It'll teach you how to ski and stuff. You want to go down there? Um, no. And they go, we'll pay for it. Okay. Twist my arm. Right. I'm like, okay, if you're really going to pay for it, I'm going to go down there. So I went down to ski back on, it's like the third or fourth week in December, isn't it? Or no, first week in December. First it, I think it's the end of the first week, yeah. So I went down and I, I, flew into the Staple, I flew into Stapleton. And the first thing I run into is some guy on the U.S. ski team. How did I know? Because he had this jacket, this U.S. ski team jacket with all these things on. I said, hey, what are you doing? You know, I'm... And I, I'm, I'm seriously like a kid in a candy store. Started talking to me. He was a really nice guy. He goes, well, I'm going up to ski spec because we're going to do a race and we might do coaching or whatever. I'm like, wow, good, because I'm going to that same thing. He goes, really? He goes, yeah. I mean, sure, he knew I was, but I didn't know that I was, you know, going up to the same thing. You know who it and was? Do you remember? If you, if you said his name, I mean, we won't say it on this, but we will later. Yeah, because he's a big part of the story. Okay, okay. So I went, I went up there and started to learn, learn how to ski and stuff and learn and got a lot of techniques and got better. And then, of course, one of the people come over and go, do you want to do the learn this, learn the race program with the U.S. ski team? I'm like, hell yeah. Because I saw them all, they, you know, he's like, all you guys that were up there had your gear on and stuff. You had your jackets, your team uniforms, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know because I've never, I'm from Juneau, Alaska. We don't, we, we never knew that stuff. And, you know, 
your guys' Paralympics weren't on TV and stuff like they are now. Otherwise, we would have known. Or they wouldn't, we didn't have Facebook and stuff back then, or we would have known. I went up there and I learned a race and I was going to do the race. So I went up there. You know, everybody does the pre-race and stuff. All you guys racers doing, you know what? You don't want to be bugged or whatever. The inspection. So you're looking at the inspect, looking at the course and all that stuff, you mean? Okay. Yeah. So I went up and talked to that same guy and asked him a question. And he gave me the cold shoulder and ignored me. <laughs> I do the race. I finish the race. And I didn't come in last. I was like, how do I not not come in last? So I was, I was pretty... I was pretty shocked at that. And then that, that same guy was down at the bar playing pool after, after the skiing and all that. I went in there and I'm like, hmm, I'm going to show this prick to never treat anybody like that again. Right. And I went in there and he broke him and made like one and then missed. And I ran the table on him. And by running the table, that means you made all your balls kicked his ass. So I did that and I said, next. And he turned around and looked at me like, you little punk. And I'm like, yep, next, again. And uh, a couple of his uh, ski techs, I can't remember their name right now, but any ski techs, big guys that were helping, they were always there, big, oh, Carl. Carl DeRocher, okay, yeah. Yeah, he was, oh. they were laughing because he got his ass kicked. And I was like, yeah. And then, so I went and talked to him the next day or whatever when we were doing a fundraising. He's like, he was just, he was a jerk to me for some, some reason, probably because I did that in front of all his friends. But he was a jerk before up at a ski, which I didn't know that you don't want to be bugged when you're, it was a giant slalom. It's not like you needed that much prep. You know, it was a freaking giant slalom. When the downhill or a super G, give me a break. Anyway, so he ignored me and I'm like, all right, I'm going to race. And I got back and I'm like, you know what? When I get on the U.S. ski team, I will never, ever, ever treat anybody like that. And that set my goal. And I called DeBello from Winter Park. And I said, hey, I met you in Winter Park, whatever. And I'm, I want to learn to race. And that's when he said, well, get the F down here if you want to learn to race then. And so I, I, and I think that was it that year I went to yours and Sarah's ski camp. Well, because that's what made me want it. And I don't know if I was in Winter Park and heard about your program. Anyways, those two are running together. I'd have to look back what I wrote in my notes. But I went back. No, I think I went to your camp. I got invited to your camp after. Got peace like hell because I had a rusty ski. I didn't know what the hell I had. And um, I don't think it was just the rusty ski, but yes. <laughs> yeah, but I decided I wanted to. For some reason, I figured out that it would be a good platform for me to help kids stay away from drug and alcohol. Otherwise I was just some average Joe that became a wheelchair. Well, it's interesting. So Sarah, Will and I started, started a monoski camp. So that's uh, she and I, she was, she was the fastest woman in the world. And, and by 93, I had become the fastest man in the world. And, and we kind of uh, decided that it was a hard thing, that it was hard to get to that point. And then a lot of people would have quit along the way. So we started this camp to to basically make it easier for for the next generation of people the people following us to to get relatively good and to have an idea of what they were looking for and try to be able to coach themselves if they didn't have access to coaching and and that's when it ended up when you showed up and i remember in the middle of the camp something happened or whatever you know we have walkie talkies or whatever and they and somebody needed me to go get something or i had to go get something and i said okay that's fine and so i just turned around and just and just pointed it you know said all right you guys are here i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go and and so i i just pointed it and then i then i looked about halfway down the hill and i looked back and you were right on my tail and i went well, what's what's up with this guy he uh i don't think he's made a turn the whole time and uh and that that might have been that might have been sort of that moment where i'm like huh this guy this guy might be pretty good at some point he, he's got he's got something going for him i was just following you i didn't know we weren't supposed to oh i don't know about i don't know if i believe that story you're like this is an opportunity i i see the opportunity part of it like i can, I can open some eyes here these guys might give me a hard time about my ski with rust on it and some of the other things or whatever but uh but yeah, and I, and I looked at that, and so then so then you ended up making the U.S. team, 
you competed in how many Paralympics did you compete in? Well, three and a half to count Sochi. Well, that might be more like three and a sixth or something like that. What didn't you, what happened in Sochi? You tell me. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't see it actually. Really? Yep. Yeah. They wouldn't get me the footage. Day of training, I, I crashed in a downhill. What were you, how were you doing going into that? So that was 2014. That wasn't the year that you won the overall downhill globe, was it? No, 2010 was it. Okay. So going into Vancouver. Right. Just training. And this actually, I told my coach that I was scared. And he was like, those are just your nerves. You always get a little edgy on front. And Sochi, that was a, that was a real course. I mean, you're talking about some, some gigantic steep sections. It was the same course. It was the Olympic course. Right. That you guys were running. And, and, and there was big air and stuff like that too. So, so what, what ended up happening? So this is a, an actual a downhill training run. And downhill training runs are effectively like a race. Everything is the same. It just doesn't count. Well, that, that's the day I was going to show everybody that they had no chance in my mind. Because <laughs> like you said, it was, it, was actually a down, it was actually the closest to a downhill that one of the ones we've ever done. Because of the speed, I love the speed, and I love the air. I get scared, but I love it. And I think that it made me feel alive. So the first, first day of training, I had the Austrian guy or the head guy come out. He came out and was yelling at me how fast I got, he, that I was the fastest guy clocked. And I already made mistakes, and I was still one of the top guys. I don't know what, what it was, but he came out, and he was telling me in kilometers, and I – course in my head i couldn't switch it to miles per hour do you remember how many kilometers he, he how many kilometers an hour you were going nope i don't remember but he came out and was like he was excited that how fast i would clock to do him okay because i made a mistake and finally at the end i just pointed yeah i think it was approaching the big air actually that the uh i don't know it's been a while it's been six years since uh since that race but yeah and it had to be over 100 kilometers an hour which would be 62 miles an hour but it, might, it was probably more than that too, maybe. So, so what? So on the second day, what's your mindset? You want to you want to show everybody else that there's no reason to show up. I did. I did. That's what I want to show them. I knew where I messed up, and I knew if I cleaned it up, I was going to beat everybody. They were they were going to say, "Wow!" But on that part where I, you come over and there's that first big pitch right before the dog leg left. That's where I messed up. And that peanut butter snow where they iced gave way when it shouldn't have given way. And right. I freaked or overcorrected and ass over tea kettle. And so you just tumbled and broke your leg, right? Is that what happened? No, or? I broke, broke my hip. Oh, you broke your hip. Okay. Yeah. That was it for Sochi, but that was effectively it for your career too, right? Yeah. It was too, too expensive of a sport for me. All the surgeries. <laughs> that that's probably true so you you came back to juno how are you related at all to or invested at all in in the native american community in in juno so you're clinket right or part, right. part clinket your father was 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 full blood uh clinket right no my father was half oh your father was half okay yeah. okay oh i thought i thought he was full okay are, are, are you connected at all with the, with the Clinket community, with the Native American community up there? And how I'm has connected. that? I know them all, but okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't do enough. I mean, I try and help more of the Natives get into baseball where it's racially different up here than it is in a lot, a lot of places. So they don't get out to baseball as much. You know, they'll play basketball more than they will baseball. Has, has it changed? Has, has, has the role or the, or the position of the Native Americans, has, has that changed since you were a kid? Is it different now than it was when you were a kid? It's a little bit better, not as much as it should be. And, you know, things like this with us losing that African-American. George Floyd, yeah. George. Yeah. George Floyd, um, yeah, in Minneapolis. It wakens, it wakens a lot of the memories and stuff. Right. And, and so as a kid... You had said at one point that you that 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 you denied that you were that you were native at all. Yeah, I didn't 
I didn't necessarily deny it, but I didn't let everybody know because of the way I treated people. I mean, I had an athlete a few within the last four years ago was bashing on natives. And I said, do you know your coach is native? And, you know, he was, he was take, taken back by that. And you're like, well, well, he goes, yeah, but you're not full. I said, but I'm native. And I happen to be one of your favorite coaches, but you're bashing these guys. So what does that mean for you? And what did he say? What was he talking about? Yeah, he didn't really know how to respond. You know, I didn't push him on it. And I just had to go with it. And, you know, we're still friends today. But I think he looks at it differently now. Hopefully, hopefully he does look at it differently. Because it's easy to look at a at a group of people. It's easy to, to look at a collective, right? And say, oh, well, this is a stereotype of, of a native. This is a stereotype of whatever, you know, and, and not actually see the individual. So I think that some of what you did was you actually showed them the individual. Is that some of what you do with regard to being in a chair too? I'm pretty sure you do it and you don't think about doing it most of the time, but yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, you want people to see you for who you are, don't you? And sometimes that's a, sometimes that can be a really big challenge. That's a huge challenge in, in the way things are today. How do you do that? How do you show people who you are? Um, I golf, I coach, I ski, I play pool. As you know, when you beat guys swinging one arm, standing up with everything, that hurts more than one of their buddies kicking their butt for a hundred bucks. You know what I mean? It does. It's true. Well, they always have an excuse in pool. Like, well, well, you're lower down there. Well, you can come down here and, and get up there. So what's your excuse now? Just change the perception. And to me, it's like, you know what? If you see that, then you're, you're pretty pea-brained. And there's nothing I can do for you until you man up. Are you pretty good at seeing that in other people? At seeing beyond that first perception of seeing beyond the stereotype? I've got a lot better at it. I've gotten a lot better. I'm not going to judge until you prove me. I'm going to give, I still give everybody the benefit of the doubt until you prove me wrong. And sometimes I even do it a second and third time. And my son says I can do it too much. It's like, you know, you should cut, cut a lot of these people off, but I can't do it. That's where I get from my mother. Her door is open to anybody that's in need. A lot of my friends call her St. Betty. Is she the center of the community? She used to be. She just now... She's the center. She's the center of our our family and our community. Yeah, she is the backbone. So, like, she does Sunday dinner every every week, doesn't she? And the whole whole family or whoever can make it comes. And how many people are in your family? I mean, this is a. I, I went to a birthday party when we were there for the TV show, and I it was it was like the whole beach was covered. Yeah. Well, you got family, and then family, family. So it makes it bigger, but yeah, I'd say 30 to 40 in, in Juno. And how many people show up for this Sunday, the Sunday dinner at Betty's for the, which I'm assuming I, I have it written down to ask you what the, what the best fish and chips is in Juno. And I think I know the answer to it. Oh, it's definitely my mom's. It sounds like that's the right answer too, but how many people show up for the fish and chips? Uh, fish and chips, they're a lot it depends a lot more will show up depends on everybody's schedule, but you can, sometimes it can only be like Donald and I, sometimes it could be five. Sometimes it could be 20, 25 on a Sunday. I, I lost my father, as you know, I don't know why he made me promise. Cause I was the youngest boy and the fifth child of six kids that mom would always be taken care of. And son, so Sunday dinners was something that my mom and dad started. Everybody can come back and eat Sunday dinner. And Donald and I just kept it going. I mean, everybody comes and then some families start their own things. And then, but every Sunday we show up and, you know, we started where my mom doesn't always have to cook, you know, last weekend, my nephew cooked and it was good. So let's, let's just finish here. What's, what's next for you? Where are you going? What are you going to do? Well, we have a knockoff of American Legion and that's why I might coach baseball. My son wants me to become a fishing captain, whaleboat well watching captain. No, I'm going to continue coaching off and on. I coach baseball and basketball. So just when it runs its course, when something comes up that I want, or I see that I want to do, then I'll change it. Yeah. And I still love working on cars. That sounds like a plan. Well, Joe, thank you for joining us on living it. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and find out what's going on 
For those of you who have not visited Juneau, Alaska, you need to visit Juneau, Alaska. When should they visit, Joe? Um, depends. If they want to ski, they can come in February or March. Really good. Um, helicopter skiing, March, April, May usually is good for helicopter skiing. For a sunshine, good luck there. You come here and June, it is a July. rainforest, right? One of the largest right. rainforests. And is it the largest rainforest in the world? It is. It is. Okay. Largest rainforest in the world, Juneau, Alaska. Yeah. So you're saying that they can come in the summertime, but it might not, it might rain on them. Right. No, it will guarantee rain on them. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you and find out what you're, what you're up to and good luck with the season. Good luck to the team. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for everything you do, Christopher Waldell. I love you like a brother. Love you like a brother too, Joe. Thanks, buddy. 